0: Well then, with a view to God's help, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read last there in the Acts of the Apostles, and the words that we were looking at in the morning, reading again at verse 24, Acts 24 at verse 24, that's page 1724. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. In the morning we focused on the first part really of verse 25 and the background in verse 24, but we heard Paul and thought on Paul reasoning about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come. That's really telling him the gospel. Tonight we'll focus on the remaining part of the verse. That's Felix's response, where we read that he was afraid. And answered, go away for now, when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And of course, we're considering, with the Lord's help, some of the famous people who crossed paths with the Apostle Paul during his ministry. People who were very famous in their own day, but now, as I said, their only claim to fame really is that they encountered this man and had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And today and tonight, we're considering this man, Felix, the procurator of Judea, a position that he held from A.D. 52 to A.D. 59. And we left him in the morning with his wife, Drusilla, hearing the gospel as it's being proclaimed to him by Paul. Now, Felix and Drusilla, as we saw in the morning, were very much a a man and a woman of the world, extremely worldly in their ways. And you would have thought, because of their position, their wealth, their influence, and a whole host of things, you'd have thought they just wouldn't have been bothered or interested in Paul's message. But that's not the case. I'm quite sure when Paul was summoned out of the prison cell where he was being held, just held in custody with freedom for people to come and go and see him, I'm sure he was very surprised to get the summons. After all, it wasn't a summons to a hearing or a a formal hearing or a, a part of a judicial process at all. He is just in custody, He's waiting for an important witness to arrive from Jerusalem. That's the captain of the guard, Claudius Lysias, who hasn't been present. He needs to be present for Felix to make a final decision. But surprisingly, before that hearing and before Lysias comes, he just gets the summons that Felix wants to speak with you. And he wants to speak with you concerning the faith of Christ. And you'll remember, that means that he doesn't just want to hear what happened to Paul and how he experienced the power of Christ in his life, he wants to hear about the Christian faith. Now, as I said, that was probably a surprise to the Apostle, and it's sometimes a surprise to ourselves, just who it is that's really interested in the gospel. We saw in the morning one reason why Felix may have been interested, and that's because, as verse 22 tells us, he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. He knew something about Christianity, and he knew some prominent Christians in Caesarea, like Cornelius the Centurion, who he would know very, very well. I think I should mention, too, and didn't in the morning, that his wife may possibly have been an influence, too. Now, she had every reason in some ways to be disillusioned, perhaps, with the faith in which she was brought up. And the reason that she was disillusioned to it was, and this is very common, it's nothing to do with the faith itself. It's just that she had a bad experience of people who claimed to hold that faith. Uh, Her father, Agrippa I, was really guilty of using her as an object. He had betrothed her to somebody when she was only, I think, seven or eight years of age. But that person didn't want to become a Jew, so that was off. But she ended up being married off to another king, a smaller kind of petty king in Syria at the age of 14. She was seduced by Felix around about the age of 18, and she's here as his third wife. But the The historian here, Luke, writing under the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes a point of telling us that she was Jewish. I think perhaps the only reason for telling us that particular piece of information is because she may have had some influence in wanting to hear this man. Some of that may have come from Felix himself because he has already heard him. And, you know, as so often happens um, when you hear a real Christian speak, Um, about real Christian experience and giving every evidence of having a real knowledge of Christ himself or herself that has its own impression it makes its own impression and there's no doubt that the first informal hearing that um, Felix had when he heard and saw Paul for the first time would have made an impression on him he doubtless shared it with his wife and his wife may well have said well Let's hear him then. Let's speak to him. Let's find out something more about the Christian faith. Maybe already, although she's only 20 or so, the kind of life that she's lived has perhaps made her realize that the world is not all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, sometimes as you're growing up, you have this idea of how wonderful the world is and how wonderful it's going to be and how many things it's going to offer you, especially if you reject the gospel and if you turn away from the law of God. But maybe she's discovered that life's not like that. And maybe she is looking herself for something more deep, something real and something true. Uh, looking for the God who made her, who made Felix too, and who made Paul, and who made you, and who made me. As the great Saint Augustine from the fourth century reminds us, our restless hearts will find no rest until they find rest in God, our creator and our sustainer. Now, as we saw, Paul uses the opportunity to reason with them concerning the gospel. That is an interesting word. In verse 25, he reasoned. It wasn't a rant or anything of that kind, but he just reasoned about righteousness self-control and judgment. He reasoned about righteousness, how we need to be right with God and how Christ is central to that. He reasoned about self-control, how we need godly living, holy living in our lives and how Christ is central to that. It is the Holy Spirit sent by Christ who enables you to live a godly life. And both these, righteousness and godly living in the light of the judgment to come, in verse 25. And Christ is central to that too, because he is the one who sits on that judgment seat at which you will appear and me too. Now I think just before I pass on to the response, it's worth emphasizing too that this kind of proclamation that Paul makes requires a uh, courage, When John the Baptist was speaking to Herod and Herodias, he had to confront the fact that there was a blatant sin in their own lives. And I'm quite sure that that is similar here. I mean, when he preaches about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, the two people in front of him are renowned uh, for their lack of these things. As I mentioned in the morning, Felix was well known for his corruption, his dependence upon bribery for wealth, uh, his immoral lifestyle. Uh, not so much is known about Drusilla, but, well, she left her husband just to go with this man and the promise there of a better life again. And I've no doubt that Paul was applying what he was preaching because he always did, just like John the Baptist did, just as the word of God always needs to be applied. I mean, it's eternal truth, but it's always being preached to us here and now. When we encounter the Bible, we discover it as it's opened up as something that is timelessly relevant. It's addressing you and it's addressing me, but sometimes the real relevance of that needs to be opened out and brought out. Well, the Apostle Paul would have done that with these two people, and that takes courage. It takes courage to witness faithfully to somebody. As I said just a couple of weeks ago, it's it's not difficult to take someone out for a a friendly cup of coffee that you want to introduce to the gospel. And that's a good thing to do, but at some point you need to introduce them to the gospel. And at some point that inevitably opens up the fact that there is something wrong in their lives and something that they need to put right. And you need wisdom to do that, absolutely so, but you need courage to do that as well. Now, we might think that courage was... Natural to Paul. We may think, oh, well, you know, it's okay for him. And, you know, I sometimes come across people who say things like, uh, oh, well, I just don't have the courage to do this kind of thing. There are people who are uh, gifted to do it. Uh, by the way, that's a different matter. There, there may be some people who have an extraordinary gift of getting alongside other people. I grant that. But courage is not really a gift as such, it's a grace. And it's a grace that everyone can cultivate and everyone has a responsibility to cultivate. And the fact of the matter is that there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that Paul was naturally any more courageous than you or than me. In fact, he, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, uh, he tells them, um, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Felix trembled. Paul trembled when he was bringing the gospel into Corinth. He trembled. And that's because he he just didn't find it easy by nature to go to a city like that that was so renowned for its prowess in philosophy and in other disciplines too. And here he comes uh, speaking the gospel of Christ, doing it in the open fora and in synagogues and in other situations too. And that's why he often prays uh, for courage and asks other Christians to pray that he would have courage too. Now, whatever graces are required to fulfill the ministry, I would ask of you in your kindness and in your Christian zeal and concern to pray that I would have these qualities too, whatever they may be. And it's good for us to pray for each other that whatever walk of life your brother or sister is in, that they would have the necessary graces to fulfill their duty there too, because graces don't grow by nature in our hearts. None of them do. None of us are spiritually courageous, and some of us even naturally may be extremely weak in courage. But courage is a grace spiritual courage is a grace that the holy spirit will give you and he will give it to you in response to prayer remember the great text that if we know how to give good gifts to our children how much more will the holy spirit will our father in heaven give the holy spirit to them that ask let that be a great text to you Whenever you are conscious of lacking any grace, a grace that you need from God, let that be your great text, that you know how to give a good gift to your child. How much more than that? Well, actually what Jesus says is, if you being evil know how to give a good gift to your child, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is not evil at all, How much more will he give the Holy Spirit and his graces to them that ask him? So, ask him for courage. Paul said to the Ephesians, Pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel as I ought to make it known. Clearly, completely, comprehensively, unmistakably, passionately, lovingly, zealously pray that I may open my mouth to make it known like that. There's something, um, well, the devil would like to shut all our mouths. He'd like to shut all our mouths as Christians so that we would never testify to the gospel of Christ to anyone, anywhere. Uh, Paul took his opportunities by the grace of God. So you pray for that courage and certainly I will too. Now that takes us to the second part of our text. As Paul reasoned, as he reasoned we could say courageously, and as he reasoned cogently and powerfully, the response we're told is that Felix was Afraid. Felix was afraid. Famously in the King James Version it was translated, Trembled. The word means that he became fearful or terrified. He became very fearful or terrified. The word doesn't convey outward agitation, but just inward alarm and terror and that too may be a response that Paul didn't expect on the other hand he would have prayed for it now why exactly was Felix terrified and alarmed I mean here's a man of the world a slave made free by the Emperor Claudius done well for himself very powerful person uh, very worldly wise, and he's reduced to inward trembling, listening to a prisoner talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The first possibility, I suppose, is just that he is a he has a simple sense of a, a future punishment and he dreads it. Uh, maybe there's something about what Paul says, the cogency with which she argues it, the the conviction and the power with which she's putting it across, maybe there's something about it, plus the fact that his own conscience testifies to the fact that there's got to be a judgment to come, there's just got to be, there's there's too much around that needs to be put right, Um, even wicked people sometimes can feel that. Now, by a simple sense of a future punishment to come, uh, I'm deliberately avoiding using the word conscience because it's not necessary to have a conscience just to be afraid of a judgment. If, if, If you know that there's a judgment coming, then it doesn't really matter how your conscience feels about it. It doesn't matter whether you feel innocent of a particular thing or guilty of a particular thing. If you're knowing that especially if you know that you're going to to go into a place of everlasting distress and misery, then if you really believe that's true, then you are going to be alarmed by it. If you have any sense, you're going to be alarmed by it. After all, James tells us in his little letter, James, who was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us that the demons themselves believe and they tremble. The word there for tremble uh, is a more rare word in the Greek language for tremble which does carry the idea perhaps of being uh, shaken by it. Uh, James is saying that in that context that believing in God is, is not enough to get you to heaven or If you believe that there is a God, and even if you believe that there is one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's not enough to get anyone to heaven. Because, he says, even the demons believe that, and they tremble. They believe in the existence of God. How can they not believe in the existence of God? And these demons, too, absolutely believe in the certainty of their own judgment, And they are wise enough, if I can use such an expression, to tremble before it. Now, that doesn't take in their conscience at all. Uh, It doesn't doesn't say anything about whether the demons uh, have a dead conscience or a conscience that alive. It just doesn't take that into account. Simply, they know there's a God and there's a judgment and they're sensible enough to tremble. Was that Felix's case? No I don't think it was, for a reason that I'll come to in a minute. The second possibility is that it was actually his conscience that was at work. But his natural conscience, or to put it another way, his conscience working on its own without the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that can happen. Unless your conscience tonight is dead, then it can respond to the word of God, depending on where you are spiritually. Mm -hmm. Paul, of course, famously speaks of people who are so hardened to the gospel and so used to sin, so used to living a life of sin and embracing that life of sin, that their conscience is seared with a hot iron. I remember referring to that expression, not too long ago from this pulpit. Seared with a hot iron means, well, just like you get a burn on a piece of skin um, that feels nothing anymore. You, you touch it and it's, it's past feeling. The skin is past feeling. Well, the conscience can be past feeling too. But that's a very sad state to be in. And I hope before God that none of yourselves are in that condition. I hope it's really not the case that Nothing in your life troubles you. Nothing that you've said. Nothing that you've done. Nothing that you are right now troubles you. I really hope that's not so. It's possible. But I hope and pray that it's not so. And some people have a conscience that is able to be stirred in certain situations. Even Judas himself. After he had betrayed the Lord. He famously put the coins for which he sold christ he he threw them on the ground and he said i have betrayed innocent blood his conscience bothered him he knew that he had done wrong but he still didn't have the resolve or the spirituality to put it right but he knew that he had done wrong but that's a natural conscience That's the ordinary work of conscience. And I don't think that that's what's going on here either. So what is going on here? Well, I think what's going on here is that the Holy Spirit is present in a particular way when Paul is bringing the gospel to Felix and Drusilla. The Holy Spirit is there. And he is producing this special conviction That he alone can produce. As we were looking at a few Sabbaths ago, Jesus said that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world. He'll do it. It's his work. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And as Felix is listening to this, the Holy Spirit starts to work, awakening his conscience. Giving him a sense that he has no righteousness, that he is a sinner, that he lacks self-control, his wife lacks self-control. And in terms of standing one day before the pure and holy Jesus on the judgment seat, there's no hope of an acquittal. There's no hope of being found clean or pure. He's damned. He's under condemnation. The wrath of God lies upon him, and he is a hell-bound as well as a hell-deserving sinner. Now, the reason I'm saying that the Holy Spirit was present at this meeting is because of the particular Greek word used for alarmed here, or fearful, or trembling. The particular Greek word is only used five times in the New Testament, and it is always used in contexts where either God or the angels are present. And it is a a special response to the divine presence. The fear of God that comes upon people when God is really present. The fear of God that comes with the genuine presence of God. So that when the preacher preaches about sin and righteousness and judgment, there is a sense of being under God's condemnation. And that kind of presence of the Spirit can be there outside of a worshipping assembly. It can be there where two people are talking together. It can be there where you have asked for God's blessing as you're going to bring the gospel to somebody It can be there. In God's sovereign will, he can be there to produce that kind of conviction of sin. Let me highlight a a couple of things in connection with this. First of all, this sense of, of fear in God's presence is something that should be present in all the congregations of God's people. There are some churches that try to specialise in having no spirit of fear, where the atmosphere is one of um, camaraderie, uh, social gathering, and, well, it's just the cultivation of a feel-good factor, however exactly you wish to describe it. But when Paul is talking about uh, speaking in foreign languages in churches and some people going for the spectacular instead of for the plain, he tells people to go for the plain to make sure that those who are preaching are preaching, or prophesying in a language that people can actually understand. And he says in connection with that, that if the unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and convicted by all. And the secrets of his heart are revealed and falling on his face, he will worship God and he will report that God is truly among you. Now, these are the kind of statements you need to stand back in the light of and unreally process. What's he saying? What he's saying is if there is a a really clear presentation of the word of God, and if the Holy Spirit is present, I'll come back to that in a second, then that's the response. The person is convicted. He feels that his heart is being revealed, and he falls on his face, worships God, and reports to others that God is truly there. God is amongst them. There's fear in that assembly. And that fear comes with God's presence. If God isn't present in in any congregation or in any location, there's no fear. If there's no fear, there's no presence. If there's no reverence in an assembly, God's not there. It doesn't matter if, if everybody claps for 30 minutes and sings a lovely repetitive chorus, he's not there. If there is no reverence for God, he is not in the assembly. And if he's not in the assembly, that's either my fault or yours. It's either my fault as a preacher or yours as a hearer or both. Or both. And that brings me to the next thing in connection with this presence. Friends, we need to pray for it. We need to pray for the presence of God and the power of God Especially in our gatherings. I mean, last Sabbath morning we looked at Sergius Paulus, uh, how he was dependent for counsel on this kind of magician slash wise man who was his leading counselor in Cyprus, and Paphos, there, where he was Roman proconsul. And you'll remember that when Paul preached the gospel to him, you'll remember that that magician slash wise man was convicted. And you'll remember that Sergius Paulus himself was converted. That was the power of God at work in that meeting. Now, we have, I would guess, as a people generally, I'm not talking about our own gathering here tonight, but generally in the Christian church, certainly in the Western world, I think many parts of the world are different. Praise God for that. But in the Western world, many of us are guilty of having low expectation and little preparation for the gatherings for worship and the proclamation of the Word of God. We all need to pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the preacher of the Word and enabling yourselves to respond to the proclamation of of that Word we need the holy spirit in our gatherings to see conviction to feel conviction to see conversions and new births these are the fruits of the holy spirit's presence and without the holy spirit we will just go through formalities we need the holy spirit to prosper from it to grow To be converted, to be born again, to grow into the full maturity and stature of a man or a woman in Christ Jesus. Pray for the presence and the power of God. Sad to say, um, in some churches, uh, people would be horrified if the congregation were affected or alarmed. I mean, if, if you went out of, of this place tonight, let's say you went out yourselves alarmed or affected, or some of you were distressed. People say, that's an abusive church. Uh, that's a church you really shouldn't go to. You get upset in that church. Uh, there's a young person who's really upset because of something that was said by the minister. Uh, you don't go to that church where you get upset. So, of course, nothing will be said to upset, nothing to convict. Nothing of sin, nothing of judgment, and certainly nothing of hell. That describes an awful lot of churches. It describes churches that we would be surprised that are actually like that, but that is what they're like. But Felix trembled, and it's good to tremble. It's good to be afraid when you contemplate the truth about yourself uh, as a non-converted sinner going towards the judgment seat of Christ. It's good to tremble. Good to tremble. Did Drusilla tremble? Well, the fact is that we don't know. She and the family she came from had plenty to tremble about. There was a, a, a long line of guilt and notoriety in that family. I'm not saying she's responsible for that. But I am saying that the little indications that we have in, in history, and there, there aren't many to be fair, but indicate that maybe there wasn't much different. Her great grandfather was King Herod the Great. That's a misnomer. There's nothing really great about him. He's the one who massacred the children in Bethlehem. Her granduncle was King Agrippa, um, sorry, uh, Herod Antipas, who beheaded john the baptist her father was king agrippa the who killed the apostle james with a sword and who died an agonizing death in the midst of making a, an oration a great speech which was largely taken up with praising himself we're told in acts 12 i think that god struck him dead in the middle of making that oration if if she shared the lives of these people, well, maybe she was beyond conviction herself. Although it's amazing that some of these people I mentioned weren't beyond it. In fact, her granduncle uh, who beheaded John the Baptist, he was a person who heard John the Baptist preached very often and asked him, asked him, Uh, to speak with him regarding the things of the gospel. And we're told that whenever John the Baptist spoke to him regarding the things of the gospel, that Herod did many things. He responded, but not with conversion. He responded with conviction, but not with conversion. And a conviction that doesn't ripen to a conversion isn't enough. A conversion is a turn-around. To convert is to turn around. It's to repent. To repent is to turn around. That's what the word means. Uh, They didn't turn around, these people. And I don't know if Drusilla is even convicted. Well, how should Felix have responded? Well, it's very straightforward. He should have yielded his will to the striving of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was communicating something very powerfully to his mind. It was reaching into his heart. It was his duty before God to yield his will to that. In other words, to recognize, yes, I have no righteousness, but Christ could be my righteousness. I have and have had no self-control in my life, but God can give me that self-control. I can get no acquittal at the judgment to come, but God can get me an acquittal through Jesus Christ at the judgment to come. He needs to yield his will to that. When Peter preached the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost, we're told that when the people heard it, They were cut to the heart, similar to Felix, sounds like it anyway. They were cut in here. They were grieved and they were doubtless alarmed because they said, what shall we do? The answer, repent, turn around, embrace God. When John the Baptist preached, the people responded by saying, what shall we do? The answer, repent, turn around change as Paul preached to the Philippian jailer incidentally and to the prisoners who were in the jail with him the earthquake came and God's appointment Uh, the chains were loosened the jailer thought he was going to lose his job and he might as well take his own life Uh, Paul told him not to take his own life Uh, like I've said before that's never the answer to anything Whatever your problem, whatever shame you think may be coming your way, the answer to a problem is never to take your own life. Remember that. There's no problem so bad that can't be sorted. Remember that. Do yourself no harm, Paul said to the jailer. What must I do to be saved then, the jailer said. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your house. Again, turn around and believe the gospel. That's your duty. I mean, if the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, is showing yourself tonight that you've reached a place in your life where you need to change and put things right fundamentally between you and God and have peace with God yourself in your own heart, new life, new life in you and a new lifestyle, And an acquittal at God's judgment seat. You need to turn. You need to respond. You, You can't just say, oh, well, I felt that and I thought that. Do something. Do something in consequence and put the thing right. But sadly, of course, there is another possibility. And that possibility is that instead of yielding to the Holy Spirit, you resist the Holy Spirit. You resist his influence and you reject his calling. Now you say, is it possible to resist the Holy Spirit? Is the grace of God not irresistible? Well, yes, it's absolutely irresistible when he's determined that that be so. But that's going on to God's side. But the fact of the matter is that on our side we can absolutely resist it. There is an irresistible grace. There is also a resistible grace. There is a conviction of the Holy Spirit that does not ripen into a conversion. There is a conviction of the Holy Spirit that does ripen into conversion. And only time will tell, and it is in your hands tonight where your own conviction goes. Does it stay and maybe recede, or does it ripen into conversion? The fact is that you can resist the Spirit's influence and you can resist his calling. There are so many examples of it in the Bible. Even if you go back to the ancient world, before the flood came, in that first instance where humanity just corrupted itself completely, so much so that violence and immorality of every kind was just everywhere you looked and God decided to decreate the world that he had created. The world that had once come out from underneath the waters miraculously went back underneath the waters again. Why? Because of the evil that was in the world. But God gave space for repentance. And you'll notice how he announced that space. He said that my spirit shall not always strive with man. His days shall be 120 years. That's not a lifespan because nobody uh, in that generation had that lifespan recorded in the Bible. 120 years means 120 years for the human race before it perishes, before I bring the flood and save the few who are still looking to me. But my spirit shall not always strive with man, but for 120 years I will strive with humanity. He can strive with a nation for a length of time before he gives a nation over. He can strive with you for a length of time. Before what? I don't know. Conversion or rejection. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, in his speech that he's making before he's stoned to death, it's his own defence and he knows his defence is a waste of time. But nonetheless, he makes it because it's an opportunity to speak about God. And what he decides to do is he goes over the history of Israel. And although he mentions people who who were a blessing, he just takes examples of how Israel just constantly seemed to reject God's voice to them. They just seemed to reject it all the time. And he ends his defense by saying... You stiff-necked and uncircumcised people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the ones who foretold the coming of the Just One, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You've resisted the Holy Spirit. How did they respond to that? Not in a good way. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That sounds good because that, you'll remember, was the response of the people who heard the gospel when Peter preached it at Pentecost. They were cut to the heart. Oh, but this was different. They were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, that's what happens when people are so angry. Sometimes you see them so angry that their teeth start to grind together. Well, that's what they're doing here. And they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, because Stephen was saying that he was seeing heaven opened and Christ standing at God's right hand. They ran at him with one accord. They took him out of the city before they stoned him. They of course laid their clothes at the feet of a young man called Saul, who was of course to become Paul. When the Gadarenes, people from Gadara, when they saw Jesus uh, casting a multitude of evil spirits out of a man called Legion, that man who was running around in the tombs cutting himself, constant suicidal tendencies, Christ cast the evil spirit out of that man and the the, the local inhabitants of, of the town saw him. This man was just running wild in the tombs. They saw him sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. Do you know what the men of Gadara asked Christ to do? They told him to go away. They told him to go away. It's an astonishing response. But... In some ways it's not. There was something about the whole series of incidents that made them feel that there was something disruptive here and they didn't want their own lives disrupted. Interesting. And it's interesting how many ways and on how many occasions that kind of thinking applies. Friends, let me tell you that if you didn't know it already, it's a dangerous thing to ask God to leave you alone. I know people who have stopped going to church Uh, in their lives because they felt that the gospel was actually touching them. They felt they were, as they would say it, in danger of being converted. The danger is in being unconverted. Dear me, don't ask God to leave you alone in case he does. Because believe me, that's not something you want. For God to leave you absolutely alone is the definition of hell. And if God does leave you, he may never return. There are more subtle ways in which you can tell him to go. Take Felix here. Go away, he said. Go away for now. For now. I'll call for you, he says, when I have a more convenient time. In other words, I will think about it again. We'll speak again. I'm sure he intended to speak like this again. I'm sure he intended to listen to Paul like this again. The fact of the matter is that never worked out. He intended to do it, but as someone once said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What's wrong with that response? Go away for now and I'll call you when I have a convenient time. Well, in a nutshell, what's wrong with it is that he's presuming on too much. The fact is that gospel opportunities are always in the present, they're never in the future. Now, I know in one sense they're in the future, in another sense they never are. The gospel is always a present call to you right now. It's it's never a call for you to do something tomorrow. Uh, They always used to say that a real diet doesn't begin tomorrow, it begins today. Some of you may know that to be true. Well. Real repentance never begins tomorrow. Real repentance begins today. The gospel has no time for any line of thinking that says, well, I will look after this. Sometime. Now is the day of salvation. It's in the present tense because you've got to deal with it now. Now. No time like the present, absolutely not, when it comes to the gospel itself. I mean, who knows whether Felix or Paul will have a future? Who knows that? None of us are promised a day. None of us. Who knows what a day will bring forth? Tomorrow could begin with you not alive, with me not alive. That's just a fact. And unless we've thought about it, we're really foolish. Moses says in the psalm, teach us to count our days. By counting our days, he doesn't mean one, two, three, four or whatever because who can do that? He just means recognize that they're finite. Reckon with that. Really reckon with the fact that you are we're all dead. We're dying and we'll soon be dead. Reckon on that. The future is not promised. And Felix is oblivious to the fact that the future, if he's spared to see it, may be very different from the way he thinks it's going to be. He thinks that later on, he'll be just as interested in the gospel as he was at this particular point. What guarantee has he got of that? In fact, as you read the history here, he's not. He meets Paul several times after this, not once Is there the same response to the gospel at all? When the convenient time came, the fact is that he just wasn't interested anymore. Have you got a guarantee you'll be interested? You're interested maybe tonight. Maybe you've been interested for weeks and you are really concerned about becoming a Christian but you still say, well, this first. And I don't know what that is. I've heard some people say really strange things as reasons why they haven't become Christians. Well, once I retire, I'm going to really think seriously about church. Well, start thinking seriously about God. now, not about church when you retire, but about God now. I mean, how do you know how you're going to feel then? Just how do you know? And in any case, is there not something insulting about saying to God, "Well, when I have a convenient time i'll I'll think about it. Is God like a convenience store? Is he somebody that we consult at our convenience or use at our convenience? No, the king's business requires haste, not procrastination, not delay. The fact is that when we all look at this objectively, we can, we can all see, I hope clearly, that there's no time like the present for Felix. This is the time. He's sitting there with his wife and he's really impressed with the truth of the gospel and he's touched by its power. When are you going to feel that again, Felix? The fact is that the day might come, the day that we thought we'd consider Christianity seriously, And that day finds us cold and hard. Look at the stats yourself. Look at the amount of people who turn to Christ in old age. And look at the number of people who turn to Christ in their youth. Just actually do that yourself. I'm not going to bother even giving you the statistics. Just look it up. How many people are converted to Christ in their youth? And how many in their old age? Once you see that stat, please stop saying to yourself, Well, I'm going to leave it. And think about it later. As Thomas Hood famously said uh, in his poem when he was remembering when he used to swing as a boy and he would look up at the tops of the trees and he would imagine that they were touching heaven. He said in his poem it was a childish ignorance but now he says it's little joy to know that I'm further off from heaven than when I was a boy. Don't let that be said of you as a man or as a woman. Let me close by saying something again from secular history. In Felix's case, things did change. Uh, He was bad for bribery, renowned for that. And the fact is that these initial feelings that he had just wore off. And the next few occasions on which he met Paul, he simply wanted money from him and he would set him free. Like I said in the morning, the Jews always used to say that no one was left under Felix's custody except those who couldn't pay their way out of it. The mixed motive was there and the covetousness won over. It got the better of him. What happened to him? Well, in AD 59, he was summoned to Rome because he was involved in the plans to assassinate the high priest in Judea. Uh, he was genuinely involved in that. The The awful thing about that is that the high priest in Judea at the time was the one who was instrumental in getting uh, Felix this post. Uh, but he, he sent professional assassins into the open courts of the temple who just took out their knives at the right time, stabbed the high priest and just put the knives back in and away they walk. He was sacked and he disappears from history. His wife, well, she dies along with her son and who knows, maybe their bodies are visible. I'm saying that because they died in Pompeii in AD 79 when Mount Suvius erupted. And the eruption of Vesuvius and the the embalming of Pompeii in the twinkling of an eye was always used by the early Christian fathers in the uh, late 1st, 2nd, 3rd centuries, always used as an illustration of how judgment can come and can fall upon you so suddenly, in much the same way as many preachers on the island here in the 20th century used to refer to the Isle of how close you can be to safety and how you can perish. Well, they always used to refer to Vesuvius and to Pompeii. There lies Drusilla, and there lies her son, the son that she had from this marriage to Felix. I can't say for certain tonight where Felix and Drusilla are. I can say for certain that they are either in heaven or in hell, and I can say for certain, too, that whether they are in heaven or in hell, they remember very well the day that they met the Apostle Paul, when at least Felix's heart, trembled. If yours does, bring it to conversion. Don't resist the Holy Ghost. Let's bring your service to a close by singing in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 and at verse 6. Where we're called to come and to worship God. Now, The way the verses are structured here, just to retain um, the poetry, makes it a little difficult to follow the sense. You'll see near the end of verse 7, you have the word today at the end of a line. That's actually starting a, a, a new thought altogether. So we can begin the reading there. Today, if you his voice will hear, then harden not your hearts. As in the provocation, as in the desert on the day of the temptation. When me, your fathers tempted, tested me, and proved me, and did my working see, even for the space of forty years this race hath grieved me. I said, this people errs in heart. My ways they do not know, to whom I swear and wrath that to my rest they should not go. Let that not be true of uh, yourself or myself. Verse 6 to the end, we stand to sing. O come and